Welcome to The X-Files, a special edition podcast from Full Prefrontal. We love stories because they take us to the secret hidden places where we store the essence of real living. Only through stories do we witness extraordinary moments of human resilience. In these special edition episodes, we hear the stories of former clients, learning about their gifts, challenges, aspirations, letdowns, and inner activism. The clients presented in The X-Files have helped Sucheta become a better listener, observer, problem solver, and above all, a caring clinician. She hopes these stories will melt your heart and help you see executive function in a new light. And now, here is our host, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome to the second episode of X-Files. I'm very excited to share with you another client story. Let me start with an interesting observation. You know, Mae Jameson is a former NASA astronaut, but what's unique about her is she's the first woman of color or an African-American woman to go to space. And now she is a Bayer's National Making Science Makes Sense spokeswoman. She has an undergraduate degree in physics and she went on becoming a medical doctor, so to speak, to keep her mind occupied. And when she was asked, uh, how do you keep yourself from being bored? She replied that a friend of my father's once told me, if you are bored, you're not paying attention. And I thought that was such a neat quote. And that's why I thought I'll start my story today with that, that many of my students that I work with are smart and capable, but are not privileged with great attention skills. And they are certainly not equipped to know how not to get bored or how not to let their mind wander and lose their focus and how to manage to get things done. You know, academic success these days heavily depends on doing academic tasks that are more in executive function area rather than academic uh, per se. They range from doing open-ended projects, organizing and synthesizing ideas, kind of formulating opinions by researching topics, organizing those details from uh, various readings, consolidating into a well-formulated thought, and then mastering this digital and print medium to process information. And that's a very daunting proposition. And what I want to share with you today is there is hope. There is hope because these skills can be taught. And today's message comes from a very dear uh, client of mine. His name is Scott Joplin. Of course, that's not his real name. But I want him to share this idea with you that students can develop self-mastery as he did. And he's here to tell us that how he has managed to get master's degree in computer science and work as an innovation engineer at a very successful company. And I'm sure you will find inspiration in his story. So here's my conversation with Scott. Welcome to the show, Scott. I'm so happy that you're willing to share your story with our audience. So welcome. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit of your background and what you do for work? Sure. Basically, my work is kind of research and development. I mean, it can be a a couple of technology-related things. Sometimes it's robotics. Other times it's more general computer programs. But basically, that type of uh, technology, that type of technology field. In terms of my education, I um, I guess the most recent thing I did was uh, I got a master's in computer science. And then I also, um, uh, one of the important things, even though there wasn't a degree attached to it, was the time I spent in the robotics lab. 
when I was in grad school that actually made a big difference, even though there's no credits for it or anything. I actually have to attribute a lot of what I've done since then to that time I spent doing that. That's incredible. Well, I'm so excited to talk about your journey because where you stand is so far away from where you began with me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you and I started in 2008. And so I'm going to take you back. So what made you seek help? You know, when you started your your mom, I remember approached me. And uh, so was that your idea as well? And what were the challenges you were experiencing that created roadblocks in your success? I remember you being in a second year college, you know, your undergrad. And if you can tell us, you know, what kind of impact this challenges you were experiencing had on all aspects of your life, not just academics. So my mom was definitely the one who who found you. But, you know, by that point, I'd been you know, dealing with these kinds of, of issues for many years at that point. So it wasn't really my first time, you know, confronting these things in more of a, I guess what you might call a formal way, because obviously if you have to struggle something like this, it's not like you, you're not struggling with it, but until you have a, a name like, you know, executive function disorder or ADHD or whatever the case might be for a given person, I think it's, um, it's not quite the same as when you say, oh, okay, this is a constellation of things and you're not the only person who has to work with this kind of stuff. And then I guess as far as, um, the impact academically, and this, you know, can, can apply to other stuff too, but, you know, a lot of it just has to do with, you know, being organized, starting things in a timely fashion so you're not doing stuff at the last minute. So what might sometimes be called procrastination, but uh, in, in some cases is really just like kind of marshalling things and, and trying to get everything together to get what you need done. It's not always exactly procrastination. Sometimes you're really just having trouble getting rolling or you'll say, sit at the computer trying to get started on something and you don't actually quite get it going, which is maybe a little bit different than finding other things to do and never never even trying. Yeah, and it's then, hard um, for me right now to look back. No, for us to collectively look back how things were, I think when you are in the middle of things and going through these difficulties, as you said, I love the word marshalling it. You know, I think it's really hard, but continue, tell us more. And then, uh, you know, as far as um, how it might affect you outside of academics, Anything where you're trying to plan something or, or get something done, it could be something you know fairly mundane, uh, or it could be sometimes something that's related to academics, but not actually you know the studies yourself. So maybe you have to make sure that you sign up for classes next year, and so that's actually something you have to proactively do. You know, no one necessarily makes you go and do that. It, it might depend on the college. Sometimes maybe your advisor would, but, but you know, if that's not the case, that's something that's not you know your homework. You're not getting a grade on it, but you still have to go and and make that happen. Mm. But you know, of course. That could be anything, right? That could be bills. That could be making sure your car gets oil changed. So sometimes taking care of that stuff can also be difficult too, because you, you almost just don't even think of it, you know. And it's not it's not so bad to get your oil changed, but you just you just kind of like put it off or don't even really think about. Oh, do I need to, you know, all of these things you have to keep track of? And one thing that you can do with that, and I, you know, I think we worked on this was uh, if you really kind of have a calendar and manage that kind of thing, that can help both for short term stuff like okay, when is this assignment due this week? But even longer term stuff like hey, you know, if I say. Every three months on Tuesday, I'm going to at least have a reminder to tell myself to go change the oil in my car or do whatever. Then that can, you know, that can be a way to manage that where you don't have to work on, you don't have to like proactively do something you're not that great at. You just set a reminder and that takes care of it. I just wanted to share and thank you for letting me do that. I wanted to share the background of your presentation when I finished my assessment and concluded that you did have executive function disorder. Mm -hmm. In my observation, what I saw was you were uh, really struggling in paying attention during classes, for example, or particularly if the lecture hall had, uh, it was a large lecture hall. The content never bothered you. You were so fabulous with it. It's just kind of keeping up with uh, that uh, continuous focus was 
a challenge for you. You also yeah. kind of talked about, you know, uh, having experiencing an anxiety of incomplete work. But as you mentioned earlier, that you had the knowledge that there's my car needs oil change. I need to download that homework, but just doing it, you know, and then you became aware of incomplete work and you would worry about it but you wouldn't take the steps to do it. And there were some roadblocks that were stopping you. You also, I noticed that you had a a tendency to overthink. (laughs) And for somebody (laughs) like me who did not struggle with it, it's a simple suggestion. Don't think so much about it, but that doesn't work, you know? And so you would uh, experience a lot of, um, uh, whether, you know, you had so many ways to slice a problem, so many ways to write a paper, so many ideas that came to you. You were so creative but pinning it down to one final idea was really, really difficult to, uh, with you. And the last audience is you would find yourself getting bored. So here's a kid who's quite easily stimulated. You know, his attention is just in going in 100 different channels, but would find himself getting bored. You would find that the work was not challenging. And in spite of work not being challenging, you were not completing it. It was, in fact, a very simple work. You know, the example comes to my mind was your calculus. Do you want to tell us That was probably one of the things that even kind of (laughs) brought the entire, your learning system to a halt was, you know, you progressively started doing uh, worse in calculus, rather performing, not understanding why. So what happened? Um, Do you recall? Maybe it's an old story now, but. I don't know. I never necessarily did that well in, um, in calculus. I mean, I guess on a conceptual level, I understood it, but I found, you know, it's hard to say how much of it was the teaching style or that sort of thing. But I found it very hard to get it in a way that really like helped me practice the steps multiple times. You know, I'd find myself in, um, you know, in a position where I'd have some work to do and I'd really be like, well, I don't know how to get started in this. And it's not really clear how to go through the steps. And that kind of builds on itself, you know, as the year goes on, yes. right? Because if you had trouble in the beginning, you don't really catch up with them. The class moves on and, you know, you, you, uh, <laughs> that makes it really tough. So true. I, yeah. I don't know that I ever, really did as well as I wanted to do in in calculus in undergrad. But what was interesting was later in grad school when I did more of, um, and this is admittedly a different kind of math, but what's called discrete math. So that's like graph theory or probability, things like that. I actually did much better. And I think, you know, it's admittedly a different kind of math, but I wouldn't necessarily say that it's easier. But, you know, I maybe had more practice. I was kind of implementing more things. You know, I did more stuff with, with flashcards, which I know doesn't work for everybody, but it was just uh, I had a I had a much better time uh, later when I when I came back to it, and also I think when I had more more ability to choose what I was doing. That's kind of the funny thing about when you go to graduate school is you really don't have to do. I mean, I'm not saying there's never stuff or classes that you don't want to take, but it's it's much more like I just have to do these things that I'm actually interested in, and that makes a huge difference. <laughs> yes, and uh, many many of my high school and college students they find it so difficult to do the work in area of uh, least interest, so to speak, or Mm. uh, less aptitude. Then another thing that you're pointing out really is very meaningful to our conversation is, I think, habit forming. A lot of times I find that when students are intuitive about content, they become very good at reaching to a conclusion or to the end of solving a problem with that content. And but if they don't, they're not intuitive and they just don't have the discipline or process uh, specific knowledge, then they never develop a way to sort it out for themselves. And that's when they begin to struggle. You know, just your great example was calculus versus that discrete math, you know. 
Uh, it yeah. probably uh, fed into your area of strength and inclination. But also by then you had you were in master's uh, program. So your brain had matured and pro- you had a greater insight into yourself. <laughs> um, yeah. So this brings me to the question that I think is uh, so important. This is one of the reasons why I wanted you to be part of this conversation, because many parents are struggling to uh, help their children who started in a way that makes them feel a little discouraged because the child is struggling in areas that don't really make sense at face value. They're a little bit here, a little bit there, you know. So when you were a a young child, uh, the reports that I had reviewed when we met you were diagnosed with ADHD, which is attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, a learning disability, processing difficulties, and dysgraphia. Can you shed some light on what your learning experience as a child was with these anomalies in your life? You know, I think it's kind of interesting because the situation I was in was often that, um, how would I put this? I don't want to say this in a way that it sounds like I'm, I'm trying to flatter myself, but basically a lot of the problem, and this can actually make it, I think, hard for me or other people to kind of process what's going on, is you you end up in a situation where you're, you know, you're smart enough to be able to do something, but you're being held back by something else. And that can be very strange because, you know, people say like, well, clearly he could do this. So why isn't he, you know, why isn't he doing it? And so instead of, if you don't necessarily have that testing or have an understanding of what's going on, it might look like you're just lazy, for instance, when the truth is that maybe you do understand the math, but if your processing speed is slowing you down, it'll make it look like you know, you're know you not doing it or you're not trying as hard as you could. And so I think that um, finding that stuff out really helps you understand, okay, this is why I'm having this issue rather than either just being frustrated and not knowing why or having it be attributed to something that people would be like, oh, well, that's a character deficiency or something, or, or oh, that's something that's easily Absolutely. fixed. So I think that was very useful to have it for that reason, because you could look at that and you could say, oh, this is uh, I mean, because in some cases it wasn't even necessarily something might not have been very much below average, but compared to other aspects, you'll say, oh, well, this is actually a lot lower. And so when you try to do something that you're normally you'd be able to do or that most people who scored the way you did could do, and then you say, oh, well, look at this. This is why it's taking them much longer to do it. <laughs> and so that was one thing. Um. You know, you were talking about how, I guess, it affected classes. So I, I did have accommodations like time and a half, that sort of thing. And that helped a lot. Thank you for being so clear in vocalizing this, that I think this, you would have been an enigma in the classroom because you are so bright and you comprehend if a teacher at a face value is looking at your participation and engagement. She thinks she you got the ideas or understood the concepts, but then when you look at the product or something you you're required to produce, your material may not match your competence or your capacity. Yeah. And that can really be very frustrating for you. I mean, you as a student or as a, a child, but very frustrating for an observer because they're thinking, what why are you not doing what you could do? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're very brave. You had a great family support. Your mom, can you tell us a little bit about their own understanding and how did that help? Yeah, well, I think they were, you know, they were really good at um, at advocating and making sure that I got what I I needed in terms of the uh, uh, the accommodations. I don't think, especially because of my age, I fully understand everything that they did, or maybe the research, uh, you know, that went into it to say, oh, hey, these are the things that are available. Like, I mean, why would somebody know that time and a half was an option, and that it was, you know, a specific predefined thing that you can ask for? You're not just making up this idea of time and a half. It's actually something that you know is pretty well formalized and understood. And then, uh, you know, the other thing was with the dysgraphia, which um, for anyone who doesn't know that uh, is, you know, just basically essentially clinically bad handwriting. I used computers as an accommodation. So if I could type it, uh, so that was the other thing, right? So you might say, well, this essay, you know, I wrote two sentences. 
I've heard you say a lot more about this. Why aren't you writing it? And the answer wasn't because I couldn't. It was because, or it was, it was because I physically couldn't write it, but not because I didn't have the ideas. Uh, the ideas. Yeah. And so um, I think that that's less and less of a problem. You know, when I first started out, people didn't really have laptops when I was, you know, in, in like grade school. Now, and, and you know, that's the other thing, right? Especially at work, like everyone uses computers anyway. So that's become much less of an issue, which is great. But I think, again, that's a situation where you might, look at, uh, you know, a student or a child and be like, I don't understand why they're not, quote unquote, just doing it when it turns out there's actually a physical impediment. Like I literally just, it's much harder. You know, my hand gets fatigued in, in ways that I've, I've seen other people don't. People can, other people can take notes by hand for hours. And by that point, my hand's cramping up. So I think that's, uh, that's important both for my parent, one of my parents recognized and said, okay, well, these are the things you can specifically do to accommodate that. Uh, that made a big difference. Yeah, and I would say among all the elements of your complex diagnosis, dysgraphia was one thing that was much more tangible. That yeah. was a bad <laughs> handwriting, but also cramping of your hands, as well as the uh, hand grip. You know, for example, the way you hold your pen and the way you stress and to write letters and the amount of effort that goes into your brain sending message to your fingers and fingers then materializing into a line or a letter, into a word, into a sentence, that was very visible and tangible. But mm-hmm. there, there, are, there are people who actually do not understand that the, the neuroscience behind this dysgraphia as a, as a, as a neurological or something, you know, diagnosable entity, or uh, let alone the more invisible aspects of the challenges you were desca- describing, which is processing difficulty. And I am really pleased to see that when such accommodations are presented and provided, so much of the burden is lifted from you, particularly the way you feel about your competence, you know, the way you feel about your capabilities to take on challenge as you go through more complex aspect of learning. So that brings me to the next question. You know, you have had over the years from kindergarten to your um, end of high school, I, I don't know, I think during college years, uh, you saw me, but I don't know if you saw psychologists or neuropsychologists to uh, get a, a, another educational or psychoeducational evaluation, but you have had many. And what have you understood from those evaluations? How did that help you? Well, I think, you know, just, again, it's a lot about understanding, um, you know, I, the funny thing about these tests is traditionally they were actually kind of, well, actually, no, I guess this is the proper use. They're really, uh, you know, people, I guess in like, you know, when you see in the news or whatever, people think of like an IQ test as being, oh, this, you know, look at how high this person scored, but they weren't really designed for that. They were actually designed to help you, help people understand where there was, uh, you know, a deficiency. and so. Even if you do well on certain parts or a lot of it, when you can then compare that and say, okay, well, you know, your your vocabulary score is, you know, maybe even bizarrely high, and yet why are you not writing very much? Again, you know, you'll you'll have a situation where a teacher will have a conversation with a student and they they know what they're talking about, but then they get a paper back and you know it's like a third of a page. And I think the benefit of that testing, aside from the fact that you have to get it done in order to get accommodations, is that you can then look at those scores and say, oh, okay, well, this explains why these things are happening. And I think that makes a big difference both to, you know, if you're trying to explain it to an educator, if the parents are trying to understand, but especially if the, you know, if the child doesn't understand why these things are happening, that's huge both, you know, in terms of morale and also in terms of addressing the situation saying, okay, what do we need to make this work? Because it turns out if I was able to type it, that made a huge difference. Yeah. And, you know, you and I had this discussion prior to our recording that uh, many parents try to protect their children, and rightfully so. I'm not 
saying that they shouldn't, but from the uh, findings of the report or they... Okay. Uh, particularly in public schools, the parents are not willing to disclose uh, the evaluation. They, at least in Atlanta, you know, I see a lot of trend where people are privately recruiting specialists to evaluate and treat, but they keep the information secret. What is your, as as an individual who has now quite a bit of, uh, you know, long distance view on this, as a student yourself, as a learner yourself, there is a thin line where this information can be disclosed in a very appropriate manner without destroying somebody's psychology, but but kind of empower them. What do you think was that timing for you? What psychological preparation goes into disclosing a disability to young learner? Well, I think a lot of it is is how it's presented. You know, you had mentioned, you had seen, uh, I think in another report, but I believe this was the way it was phrased in mine too. You know, somebody would say, well, look, you know, his his vocabulary is very good, but then the reason that he doesn't you know, write as well as you would expect when talking to him is because of, you know, the dysgraphia. Or you would say, well, he understands these things very well conceptually, but the reason he doesn't get his homework done is because of processing speed. So if you're not presenting as like, well, here's all the ways you're messed up. Like, you know, <laughs> if you, if you, you know, just kind of come at it like that, of course, it's going to make somebody feel bad. So I think when you're explaining and you're saying, this is why you're having this struggle and you're, you're also, I think both you know, again, from a morale, a morale perspective, but also just from a realistic perspective, when you say, look, this is something that you can excel at, here's why you're having that problem, that really, I think, would help a lot of people absorb it better. You know, for any individual, you know, some people could hear things in the harshest way possible and not care. Other people may be more sensitive, but I think the, the biggest thing that you can do in terms of presenting it is just saying, this isn't a judgment, it's, a, it's the explanation for why these things are happening, not some evaluation of the person as a, you know, as a human being. So I think that's important. And then uh, in terms of, I guess, keeping it secret, I am, um, you know, I guess to me, I kind of, you know, and I'm not saying uh, at some, every place that I went had a pretty good disabilities coordination. Um, I'm sure some of that was, you know, my, my parents being advocates, but, you know, uh, when I went to school, there was in either a person or an entire, I mean, not entire office, but there was a specific unit that was like, this is the, the place that handles, you know, coordinating things like extra time or using a computer. Although, the further I got along in school and the more technology progressed, the less that was even an issue that using a computer part. But I think maybe people don't realize how it happens. So like you get this test done and there's maybe one person at any given school who actually will see or is even allowed to see it. And then that person says, okay, they have these accommodations. And then by the time it gets down to a teacher, you, the only thing they hear is this student is entitled to time and a half. And that's the end of it. You don't get, they don't get like the yes. report because it's not, it's not their job. They're not qualified to evaluate it because they're not trained to. So there's no reason for them to see it. It's just like, you know, you wouldn't, you know, none of that stuff needs to or does show up there. They basically get handed down. This is the combination that needs to be done. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard other people who maybe had, you know, some issue with the teacher or that sort of thing. I, I think, you know, to some extent I was lucky, but I think to a, a you know large extent, this stuff has kind of been, you know, understood. And this is a path that other people have been down. So you go to a school and you talk to the disabilities coordinator, you're not the first person who's had these questions or, or, you know, needed these accommodations. Again, I think people don't realize that time and a half is like a specific thing that you get granted. You're not asking for like time plus 64%. It's a specific thing that people <laughs> or have like a, just a freebie out. grade improvement or nobody's <laughs> right, asking for yeah. that. <laughs> They're not just tacking 10 points on there. No, exactly. And, you know, I think um, people also, uh, I didn't ever really take any flag for this, but I, you know, I, I kind of occurred to me as I was doing that. I was like, I don't necessarily like 
how would I put it? Like, I'm grateful for the time and a half in the sense of how, you know, it allowed me to, to express myself or take the time that they needed. But like, I don't want to spend an extra 50% of the time taking a test. You know, I had exams that were three hours long. I didn't want to be there for four and a half hours. And I think your case is a little bit unique in that sense that you have ADHD and had processing difficulties. So the extended time really was useful to you because you could yeah. make use of that time to organize your ideas, but you were not impulsive. You were inattentive. You know, you were not likely to blow off your goals because you cared. But I also okay. see a group of students who actually have uh, hyperactivity as a primary symptom of ADHD, and they are do not benefit from this extended time alone. What they wow. need is breakdown of tasks. They, they need deadlines who, which are distributed over a period of time rather than just announcing one blank deadline and not doing any checks. They benefit from outlining. They benefit from uh, being given notes to fill in. Those kinds of accommodations are different. And I think that discernment uh, can be provided in the report that sometimes even though educators are not experts in reading the entire neuropsychological profile, but they can really benefit from rationale behind the recommendations that are given. Right. And that can, of course, only happen if there is a communication, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so not to be threatened by either parties, you know, by the outside evaluation or by the teachers or by the students' difficulties. There has to be a very congenial and your family and you created that environment for you, which was really beneficial. So let's get into when you and I met. Tell me, I think I remember you had heard that you had ADHD, but you had not heard you have executive function disorder. I was the first one to kind of not only explain to you you have that, but kind of give you an outline of internal organizational difficulties and external organization of time, space, and you know task management. I don't think you had that framework before. What did you think about the way I presented things to you? Or what was the difference between the way you understood your ADHD before you and I began to work on executive function disorder versus after we began to work together? Yeah, well, I think that distinction is helpful because if you just, because uh, I'd certainly heard, you know, organizational issues or something like that, but something that was, you know, very generic because that could be everything from keeping papers organized, your desk organized, but that's not really the whole story. And it's not really uh, as good an explanation, you know, because there are plenty of people who have, you know, super messy desks, but may also not, not have any other issues. You know. <laughs> it's not the same. Yeah, that's just, uh, that's just, I guess you could say it's just a symptom. It's not actually what's happening. So, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, just talking about how those things, you know, when it comes to, to kind of maybe the steps that, uh, even someone with executive function might take for granted when things are working normally. Like, I mean, when you actually say, okay, I have to order a pizza and you're like, well, there's actually like 10 steps to doing that, right? You know, you have to go online, pick what you want, put in your credit card, you have to go pick it up. You know, there's a lot of steps in there and, and you kind of take that for granted when it's something that's very doable. But when you, you start getting to something more complicated, like, well, I need to write this paper. And it's like, well, I don't actually go to the library and do research all that often. So thinking about like, yeah, you know what? I actually need to set aside four hours one weekend to go to the library. I mean, now you could, you know, just search it, right? But what you know to go by and, and to do these things, to almost actually kind of like a, a formal metacognition and sit down and say, I need to plan what I need to plan to get this done, I think might get lost on you if you just said, oh, there's organizational issues as opposed to like executive dysfunction and, and how that affects it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I was having this discussion with one of my colleagues that I interviewed for the show, and she was talking about this, that executive function, you know, we call this 21st century and we have come to assume that 
since uh, children have access to a laptop and access to internet, that means information should be available on the tip of their fingers. But that is not really what processing mm. means. You know, having access yeah. to information does not equate to discerning and, you know, picking and choosing and organizing, sorting and selecting and then kind of curating information. And curating information is never taught. And so if you don't teach it, how are students supposed to have mastery of it? And yeah. uh, the real disorder that's becoming apparent is because the information has become out of control, that student's inability to manage it has become much more vivid and apparent. So give us some examples of do you recall any situation or scenario where your learning difficulties kind of rubbed against your smarts and that you knew you were smart and you knew you were talented, you understood it, but you were not producing? Do you have examples for our listeners? You know, uh, some of the stuff in, in math may have uh, been a good example because it wasn't necessarily, you know, to take calculus, for instance, like, you know, once they, when they kind of explained like, well, this is what you're doing to, you know, you know, to take the differential sign, like this is what was happening. You know, I was like, oh, okay, I understand what's happening. But when it came to like, okay, this is how you, you actually manipulate the numbers to get the final result. What I really had trouble with was uh, there was a breakdown in my learning, like these are the steps you go through. So I would see something that I, uh, I guess conceptually, I'd know, well, this is what they're trying to do. But when I was actually like, this is how I go through all the individual pieces and work on it, that was much harder. And what was interesting was one class that I actually didn't do so well. So I, I retook it, even though technically I don't think I had to. Um, when I was doing physics, what was nice was he had us take in a note card with the equation, with basically all the equations you would need to solve something. So, you know, this is, uh, I don't know how you calculate how much inertia a spinning sphere has versus a disk or whatever. And when I was able to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to, I know that these equations are involved and I'm going to use algebra to kind of put them together. I actually did a lot better than I did in calculus where I was kind of like, I don't actually know what the first step I need to be doing here is. And so, whereas in physics, when I when I did learn, and it was kind of funny, the, the ways that I kind of managed myself into doing better with this, I had like an entire set of of like mechanical pencils and erasers and stuff. And so even though my handwriting wasn't very good, I actually picked up all these items where I'm like, I'm going to try to keep this as organized and as legible to myself as possible. And so I'd, I'd write it even on graph papers. So it was all, you know, laid out well. And that helped me keep it, I guess, straight in my mind. And so, you know, kind of finding those things to help me manage things on paper actually did end up making a big difference, even though, you know, like I said, it was a little odd that I'm like, okay, we, you know, you have all these pencils and erasers and all that stuff and <laughs> your, uh, your handwriting is not actually that great even then. I mean, it was legible, but it was still not, you know, I see other people who don't have to put in any effort and their handwriting comes out amazing. And that wasn't me. So uh, I think, you know, just finding a system of like, how do you keep this organized so that even if you're having trouble keeping track of it in your mind, you see it on the paper again, you're like, oh yes, that's where I was. Because even now that'll happen to me, I'll be thinking about something and I'll just completely lose my train of thought. But just, you know, finding ways to organize and manage that. And also, you know, just kind of a metacognition thing saying, you know, I'm aware of this issue that I'm having makes it a lot easier to tackle it. Absolutely. And that's pretty much, I think, uh, if I can summarize your uh, the training that we did, uh, it was mm -hmm. heavily focused on the metacognition, which is awareness yeah. of self as a learner and thinker, awareness of your strengths and utilizing strengths for to compensate for weaknesses, actually relearning some of the ways to not have those weaknesses. For example, the attention blocking and internal distractions versus external distractions and, yeah. uh, you know, finding tools. I focused on one particular area I'm going to talk about, and then maybe you can tell us what strategies 
you found or what methodologies work for you. But in my work, I find that everything that is internalized by an average person, person with executive dysfunction, it needs to be externalized. It needs to be outlined and explicitly stated. And everything that's explicitly stated and externalized needs to be presented in an organized way. And everything that's organized needs to be reviewed and rehearsed and reviewed and rehearsed and understood by the person who, for whom this is not intuitive and for everything that's rehearsed must be recalled. And once once walks through that loop and then again, it needs to be internalized. So unless and until that loop is not completed, the strategies are not going to be become part of somebody's understanding. And that's the kind of work I did a lot with you. What did you think about the work we did? Oh, yeah. Well, I think that is important because otherwise you you just kind of you're spinning your wheels and you're like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why this isn't working. I don't know how to uh, how to make a change. If you don't, you know, sit down, like you said, spend a lot of time on metacognition. And actually, like if you're, I don't know, say struggling in chemistry, you actually have to sit back and say, like, OK, well, how am I how am I even approaching learning this? I mean, with the physics, you know, the the thing there was I, you know, I did actually end up writing a lot of stuff down, like every like even minor steps. I would write down the little things I had done to, to change, you know, the the equation to get it to where I needed it to be. So, you know, I think that that practicing that and also just cultivating an awareness of taking a step back from what you're immediately doing and saying, how am I approaching this? I think that was really important. Yes. And Scott, you were always such a joy to work with. You know, you have a very laid back, easy personality. You're very sincere about your intentions and your desire to make a change in your ways and motivation to succeed was so evident even when you were younger. How are you doing now? How are you keeping your executive functions in check? And how do you stay strategic in your current life? You know, sometimes things do just kind of get better with age just because you you know, you get to know yourself um, and that helps. And I think also um, it is important that you try to find something that you are inherently interested in. I mean, I know they, you know, they they always say to follow your passion, that sort of thing, but I think it's maybe especially important because it's much easier to, you know, keep track of and, and be dedicated to something that you want to be doing anyway. And that's mm. part of the advantage as, as school goes on is there's there tends to be less distribution things, like maybe stuff you're not good at. But but actually so, you know, sometimes, you know, you do have to face those things, right? You're like, well I have to take this class and I know I don't like it that much, but you can find ways to manage it. For so for example, I had struggled a lot with foreign language when I was in high school. And when I got to college, what I realized I could do was I didn't have to take the foreign language course during the year when I was taking other courses that, you know, whether or not I was good at them were, were more important. So maybe, you know, there's a math class I knew I was going to struggle with. So what I did was when I came back home in the summer, I took the course at the community college and just transferred it. And so that way, when I was struggling, working on this thing that I knew, you know, was going to be harder for me, I could really dedicate my time to doing that. I didn't have to worry about managing three other classes at the same time. I could just say during the summer, I'm working on this one class. And then you really can can spend the time to like, you know, to have as few distractions as possible. And so when you when you can find those ways to tackle the things that are harder for you in a more deliberate fashion, I think that makes a big difference. And then, you know, when it comes to maybe longer term stuff or what you want to do um, more specifically, you know, like I said, I, I uh, mentioned earlier that the time I spent in the robotics lab made a huge difference both in my job and my education, even if it wasn't like mentioned on a degree anywhere. The fact that I was interested in it enough to bother going, you know, instead of going home, uh, <laughs> there's there's some part, you know, where I think you, you should say to yourself, hey, you know, I'm actually enjoying this. This is something I'm doing, uh, you know, because I didn't, I didn't necessarily like get class credit for it or anything, like as much as it later turned out to be what helped me, you know, be qualified for and, and, and get the jobs that I've gotten. The, you know, the fact of the matter is at the time, I thought it was cool. Yeah, of course, I was going to put it on my resume and, and all that. But 
really, you know, I, it was something I enjoyed. I enjoyed the people I was working with doing it. And that, uh, that's, I think a big thing. Oh, and then and another thing, this is maybe more of a, a self-social engineering thing, but again, it's, it's kind of a metacognition thing. And, and sometimes you really just have to sit back and, and find whatever is going to work for you. One thing that I realized was I was much more likely to do something if there was a, I guess you could say a social obligation to do it. So like turning in your homework maybe is not as, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of just you internally, right? You're, you're you know, a certain sense, you're the only one that affects, but when I, was doing, you know, this robotics lab, I, there were people who I was like, oh, you know, I got to get this stuff done and we're not going to have it collectively. Like we're not going to, you know, there are other people counting on this too. So if I kind of leaned into those things that motivated me better and made that like the reason I was doing it, I found that that helped a lot. And, you know, it may be different for different people, but I think that, you know, just again, it's stepping back and, and figuring out what your own process is and, and coming to realize like where your strengths and weaknesses are and how, like you said, you can lean into a, a strength to to counter a weakness. So if I was having trouble, you know, getting stuff done, if I remind myself, okay, well, I'm kind of doing this because I'm, you know, I have a, a larger interest or there are other people who have an interest in it that, that worked for me. So in closing, Scott, what advice do you have for young struggling students who are smart and capable, but do have some learning struggles and don't have the best understanding of themselves? What would you suggest they should do? Well, I think learning about it and, uh, you know, you can read other people's experiences. Um, you know, i they didn't really have this at the time, but you know, I mean, there's plenty of online forums and that sort of thing where, where people can talk about, you know, what does or doesn't work for them. I think that you know, visiting someone who's a professional in that field like you definitely makes a big difference. Just because when you're going through these things yourself, it's kind of your first time experiencing it. But if you go to somebody who has seen this ten times before, or even a hundred or a thousand, they're they're probably going to have some ideas <laughs> about uh, what's worked and what hasn't. So I think that actually you know did make a big difference. And then also making sure that you do get those accommodations. You know, it's funny, uh, you know, in a school environment, you actually kind of need those things more. I, you know, I, there's no, I don't even know what this would mean, but there's not, I don't like, there isn't, but I also don't find that I need like a time and a half at work. I don't even know what you'd call that. It just doesn't work that way. But when yes, you're in school, it's very that. like, well, right. But not only is no one going to give that, but also it's kind of more, um, you know, it kind of doesn't work that way. It's like, well, you have this thing you need to get done, but it's much more, I guess the fact that it's to some extent, you know, it's, it's like uh, you can structure things in the way that works best for you. Whereas in school, you may be handed a structure that isn't is or isn't ideal for what you know what is really going to you know make you best at what you're doing. So I think you know getting those accommodations makes a big difference. So making sure that you actually do pursue that and don't uh, you know don't either fall into the thing of oh well you know I don't really need this. You know, you, if it's something that the testing looks like will help you, uh, you know, and again this is kind of um you know you had mentioned some things that I maybe wouldn't have needed or wouldn't have benefited from, but other people, you know, needed as accommodations. So, you know, that was interesting to me because I was like, oh, I didn't even know these things were out there. But again, if you talk to someone who's in that field and they can say, hey, you know, this is an option for you, I think that helps a lot. I, I don't know where I'd be without the, the time and a half and certainly without, you know, being able to uh, to type stuff instead of write it. That would have made a huge difference. None of my writing would have been anywhere near as good if I hadn't been able to type it instead of writing it. Absolutely. Well, Scott, it's been such a delight to talk with you and Thank you for your honesty and such a beautiful way you have explained and made things easy for everybody. So I'm very grateful for your time. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was great to talk to you again. And I'm, I'm glad to share that. I hope that, uh, you know, somebody in a similar situation can benefit from that experience. Great. I'm so happy that we will be sharing this with everybody soon. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.